0: 32 and 33 of, of chapter 10 says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay, listen in. So the author writes that after they came to Jesus, their property was plundered and they suffered ridicule and things had not been easy. And to the message and the message that the author is repeating throughout the book is this, okay, big picture. If you are endure, if you are to endure the hardness of this world, then you need to commit to live with an unshakable forever hope. Repeat that again. If you are going to be able to endure, you need to commit to live with an unshakable, forever hope. The series we're working through is called Unshakable. Okay? But hear me say that a forever, unshakable hope is elusive. But it's worth pursuing because only when you find this forever, unshakable hope, you can be truly free. When you find this forever hope, you can, in a way similar to the Christians, In the book, you can live with sanity and purpose that's not tied to the following changes in your, one, your possessions. Your self-worth is truly not tied to your net worth. Two, popularity. The rejection of your critics does not determine your disposition. Three, your sanity and purpose will not be tied to your physique and your physical prowess. Changes in your body will not limit your capacity for deep joy. I feel this deeply. As my hairline encroaches. <laughs> Lastly, your sanity and purpose is not tied to your performance. Your supervisor is not the gatekeeper to your future. And it's easy to believe that they are sometimes. And so this series, unshakable, is trying to answer the question, how do you experience a forever hope? Okay? And three things. Three things to experience a forever hope. First, this is, this is today. You have to live from the mountain of feasting. We see that in the passage too. Next week, I'm going to drip out, uh, you know, kind of a teaser for the following week. So second, next week, you have to trust a perfect priest king. What does that mean? Third, in uh, two weeks, you have to strive for permanent rest. And this is this morning, okay? Amid all the instability of the present, you have to know that if you follow Jesus, you're standing in something unshakable. You're standing on a mountain of feasting. So three questions from Hebrews 12 that we're going to answer, okay? Which of two mountains do we stand? Two, what makes three How do Okay? Repeat that. Which? Two, what makes us able to stand? And then three, how do we stay standing? I'll start with the first, which of the two mountains do we stand? I know um, it's, it's easy to miss on a on on a on a first read, but the 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 chapter is actually highlighting two different mountains okay and and you're like mountains what what mountains uh, mountains are in vogue right now? people like to climb them in a way that you know wasn't really as popular a few as much more mainstream, but that's not the point so in ancient times. These mountains are images of holy places, the place where God resides. And these holy places, they shape an understanding of reality for all people. So like, you know, ancient times, if you look across cross mythology, that sort of thing, it's like the mountains are the places where, where God is. And so, so this passage, the author is using this imagery, this common sort of imagery that people would have known. And he's saying, look, you have to understand that this, this chapter um, in life, there's, there's two mountains and you get to stand on either one of them. You get two options. The first mountain is verses 18 to 21. And then the second mountain is verses 22 to 24. And he's saying, all of us, you're either living on the first one or the second. And he says that, it, you know that the, the phrase he uses to, to introduce each of the mountains, are these two phrases. If you look at verse 18, it says, for you have not come. And in, the, and in verse 22, it says, but you have come. So he's trying to contrast these two mountains and, and you yeah, you can really geek out over this. Uh, Caleb studying Greek. I don't know who he is, but, but uh, in, in Greek, he's actually using a tense that we don't have in the English. The, the Greek tense, is this Greek perfect tense. And this idea is um, something has happened in the past, but it has implications on the present. Okay? So so something has happened in the past that has implications on the present. And the thing that happened in the past is you have come to a certain mountain. And that certain mountain you went to in the past is now something that you're standing in. So the author is writing them and saying, um, in the past, you have been standing, you have gone somewhere, metaphorically and existentially, that right now in the present, you're standing one of these two mountains. And the simple question this morning is, which of these two mountains are you standing on? Which of these two mountains are you standing on? So I'm going to just describe the two mountains as it's described in the text, okay? The first mountain is this mountain of fear and danger. Fear and danger. Verse 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. When a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, what is going on here? The descriptors for life on this mountain of fear and danger are darkness, gloom, tempest, and then also the sense of terrifying sounds. And, you know, this it, it took me a lot of reading, like, like reading this over and over again. Because I'm, I'm trying to understand what is going on here. And it's pointing back to this moment in the Old Testament when God's people um, come in contact with God really for the first time. And they're terrified. Um, and, and the image with all the sort of darkened pictures is something that the original hearers would have felt viscerally in a darkness, gloom, tempest, terrifying sounds. But you have to understand that there's a little genius that, that this, he, this author in Hebrews, because he's appropriating this experience, this visceral experience they would have been familiar with, but he edits it. And he edits it by removing God from the scene. So again, I'm like racking my brain. What does this mean? Like, is God there? Is he not there? And I'm asking the question, what is actually going on here? Why are they so scared on this mountain? What's so terrifying about it? And and here is what's going on. There's terror and there's looming danger. And the question is why? And this is sort of a a key idea here. Those on this mountain experience a vague sense of God without an actual knowing of God, without intimacy with him. Okay? Those on this mountain carry a vague sense of God, God, but, but they don't actually know him. And this is terrifying. And the counter for the modern person is, well, like, I don't really believe in God. So how does this apply to me? Okay. What's, how does this make sense? Uh, you know, in, in reality of, of my life, I don't, I don't really believe in God. Um, there's this passage in Romans chapter one. It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity for by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth for what can be known about god is plain to them but god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse okay what's what's the point i'm trying to make this passage both romans 1 and hebrews 12 seems to say that everyone on this, you either have on this mountain of fear, of, of fear or of feasting. And on this first mountain, it seems as though everyone knows God in some way. You know God, everyone does. Everyone is born with within some sense of God. And some theologians uh, would describe this as this, in this, in, you, like everyone has a has a sense of God in the way that you know how to get home after a long day of work, okay? you After a long day in the office, your, your mind is a little fried and you start making your way home. And then out of nowhere, you're home. And you don't, you don't know how you got home, but you just found your way home. You, you without even realizing it, You knew the directions mapped out and you you were operating somewhere out of your subconscious, but you're home. And both of these authors in Hebrews and Romans are saying deep down, deep down in the way that you know the way home, you know that there is a God. Your subconscious is familiar with almighty God. Everyone possesses a knowledge of, of him. He made you and you cannot deny him. But from this passage, it's saying to have a vague sense of him from a distance will leave you terrified. Why? Because this world possesses a power that can in any moment end you. And I mean that in a negative way and a positive way. What do I mean? The world possesses great power that in any moment can end you. Um, the And... and, and in a negative way, there's just harmful things, things that usually cause us anxiety, right? You, you, you will see sickness and death approach upon you, and you will fear and tremble at the possibility that misfortune and injustice can land on you and your family. You sense a powerlessness in the world that can feel chaotic, and to face looming danger on your own is overwhelming and fear-inducing. And in those moments when you get pushed to the brink, there is a sense of a God out there, and try as you might to avoid relying on him. We're prone when we're desperate to beg, God, help me. Help me. And I know this, uh, I mean, I've been sitting in this week um, as I have been tenderly getting myself acquainted with Matthew Perry's story and his, and his autobiography, which I recommend to you. He says that, you know, at one point early in his career, he just makes a deal with God. God, make me famous. You can do whatever you want me. And there was a sense when it started to happen that God was just biding his time. And then in this moment, what actually keeps him sober for a couple of years is this experience of the transcendent that he can only attribute to God. So what, what am I pulling out here? There's a sense that everybody has an awareness and an experience of God. And as much as we try, as Romans 1 says, to suppress it, there's a deep down knowledge that there is a God out there somewhere. And we could choose to suppress but that will leave us just a little bit terrified about what we're accountable for. But it's not only the negative things. There's also the beautiful, positive, beautiful things like an ocean. Okay? You stand in front of an ocean and take in its size and you will feel how devastatingly powerless you are. You go to the ocean after dark, get up close to it, stand out facing the dark and see how far it goes and feel how great it is. And you will feel small. And you stand out there and scripture says, you know that God exists. You will feel it. And the knowledge of his overwhelming power is there, though we can tamp it down. But a sense of his power without knowledge of his person will, will feel like danger. And so the option one on this mountain of fear and danger is you can live your life terrified. At the power of the world with a vague sense of God trying to stuff down to suppress your awareness of him. And to feel the weight of, of his power through the world knowledge of him will be terrifying and anxiety inducing. And here's the contrast. Verses 18, verses 22 to 23. Okay. Did I just, did I uh, appropriately terrify everybody? Verses 22 and 23. There's a contrast, he says either. You have not come there. If you're in Christ, that's not where you live. This is where you have come. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Okay, there's this picture that in, in this first century, they would have felt so deeply of darkness, of danger, of terror. And in just the same way they, these images would have spoken to them as the exact opposite of that. It says, okay, so you have not come to this place of danger, but this is where you've come. So where is it? It says, you have come to the city of God's presence heavenly Jerusalem. So what does this tell us? One, God welcomes you into his town. You know him, you are known by him. In this place that you stand, he holds you secure. There's a sense that some of that we get to experience in glimpses right now, but all of life is a Christian pilgrimage towards this place in reality. We're making our way on this journey, this sort of hero's journey, but a collective hero's journey, making our way towards a heavenly city of permanence. Two, God not only welcomes you into his town, it says that God welcomes you into his party. It says innumerable angels and feastal gatherings. I didn't know this is a word, but it's related to feasting. Feastal feasting. And the picture there reminds me, growing up Filipino, of a party of dancing and abundance. I'm always prone to order more food than we need. Why? Because internally, the estimate I'm making, is not an American one, it's a Filipino one, of abundance. God welcomes you into His party. You don't live in this place of danger, of terror. You live in this place of abundance, of dancing. We go from this mountain of fear and danger, F and D, to mountain of feasting and dancing, F and D. You live here. Not only that, but it says that what God gives on this mountain is also the assembly of the firstborn. What does that mean? That's his church. It says God not only welcomes you into his town, he not only welcomes you into his party, but God also welcomes you into his crew. His church, you are held by this community. So the question becomes, what what makes us able then to stand here on this mountain? Point two, what makes us able to stand on this mountain versus the other one? Verse 23 and 24 says this, And to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is who who all is there. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay. It says, On this mountain, God welcomes you into this town. He welcomes you into this party. He gives you a crew. And also, who is there? God, the father, the judge of all. And we don't like the idea of judgment. Judgment. Judge, that sounds terrifying. That is exactly what we're scared of. Um, N.T. Wright theologian says that judgment is something that we as Christians should look forward to because it's the time when all that is unjust will be made just. We look forward to a point in the future where no injustice is present. But why is it that we don't look forward to this moment when, when injustice is, is no longer present? Because down deep, we also know in a deep, deep subconscious way that injustice runs through our hearts. And if we were judged on the basis of our frailties and inconsistencies and our vulnerabilities, we would not be able to stand on this mountain. So, what makes us able to stand? So if God the judge is gonna make all things new, the injustice and pain of the present will be undone. What makes us able to stand there with our inconsistencies and our frailties and our vulnerabilities? We keep on reading. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. On this second mountain, Jesus is present. And Jesus is friend of sinners. And his sprinkled blood, which connotes his work on the cross, for inconsistent wayward sinners like us makes us able to stand on this mountain. The difference between the fear of God as a distant and dangerous and a person or one who is comfort, comfortingly powerful and intimately good. The difference between understanding those two conceptions is the person and work of Jesus. So the question I asked this morning is, won't you stand on this mountain? It's a no-brainer. You cannot deny him. You were made by him and you cannot deny him. So you might as well trust him. You can stand on this mountain of fear and danger or you can look firmly, concretely at the person of work in Jesus and you can, ex- you can enjoy the beauty of this mountain of feasting and dancing. Won't you trust him? There's nowhere else to go. The passage doesn't stop there, though, to a church that is scared and sluggish as, not talking about us, talking about who the author is speaking to. He also says, okay, this is how you remain standing when the world gets home, things get uncertain. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So what do we do? One, we listen. Um, the Lord has spoken through His word. do we cherish it like He has spoken to us? Um I know that there's all these takes about how you know, we uh our uh our faith is overly sort of like theoretical or whatever um we got to do other things besides read scripture i I you know what I'm from the school of thought. It's like, we don't actually use our heads enough. Like we don't understand the gloriousness of the word deeply enough. Um, I have conversations with some of you about your work. I know the great complexity that you're working through when it comes to the concepts and things and the things you had to learn in order to do your jobs. Um, And I just know that this can appear complex, but some of the stuff that you guys are dealing with, much more complex. Um, you are smarter than me. I know it. And so if I, you know, can read this, it might take me 10 times. It'll probably take you five and you can understand it. And you could feel the weight of his promises. Like, I, you, we listen to the text because, um, because in it contains the promises that he has for us. And if you just meditate on it, I just, I feel and I believe that it will be a joy and encouragement to you. What would it look like for us to listen deeply to His Word, understand that the images are different than what we're used to? You know, we're they're using like Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and we're used to Avengers, and that feels different, but it's really the same. You know what I mean? Like you sub Thanos, and you add, um, you know, in Revelation. And kind of the Jezbel. I don't know, it's like these are common language images that are foreign to us, but we're doing similar things. And all I'm saying is this can actually be understood. And I know that many of us have given up trying to understand this and then just sort of wait uh, for us on a Sunday morning to kind of unpack it and make it practical. And I'm just saying, I, I, think, you're, I think there's more for us here. And I just, I, w- I want to challenge us towards that more here. Two, uh, we not only listen to what he says, but we also receive. What do we receive? Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. Two, so what do we receive? It says an unshakable kingdom. So what do we know about this kingdom? This kingdom exists right now. It exists. And the way we're supposed to receive it is communally as a fellowship. And what it's saying is that on this side of things, things will feel shaky. But you have to understand that if you're standing on the second mountain, looking at Jesus, things will shake. But as things are shaking, the church is also receiving this unshakable kingdom at the same time. So all of a sudden things are hard around us, but there's a purpose, uh, permanence. That's being built as things feel wobbly and unstable. And so we receive the sandwiches. Which is the making of, of this fellowship, the sandwiches. So things will shake, but you, we see you are secure. Because what we receive is from him last, okay? Last very, very last, not like a preacher's last. Last, we listen, we receive, and last, we worship. Verse 28b, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? God is still big and he's still powerful. He's still worthy of our affection and of our worship. He's not the soft, dainty, you know, Jesus is my homeboy kind of situation. He's massive. He's great. And something happens when we worship where we get to experience him. Heaven and earth come together. And the only response we could have in order to be able to, in order to, be able to experience the fullness of this unshakable kingdom um, is to be able to enter into worship of him because collectively and you see this i mean i can build this out from passages other passages where you see this completely but the church the way it's always worked is um, a group of people come together they worship god and as they worship they receive they receive the thing that they did not know they were longing for it's matthew berry they receive Everything we didn't know we were longing for. And so with that, we're just going to worship. I'm going to come back. We're going to do that last song because it fits and we have the lyrics. And we're going to stand. Oh, we're going to do Build My Life. Alex Audible. Things will feel shaky, but you have to understand that if you are standing on the second mountain, as things are shaky, they're also becoming more secure. This is our hope. I'm going to pray for us. and we will go to build my life. Okay. Would you stand? If you're feeling like you're living on this mountain of fear and danger, just, just know that if you're in Christ, you might feel that way, but where you're actually standing, where you're actually standing is a mountain of feasting and dancing. And if you do not experience that at all, because you you don't know Jesus and you haven't experienced this invitation, would this be the day where you stand on a different mountain than from where you're standing? Would this be the moment you say, Jesus, I would you help me experience the feasting and dancing that you have built me for? I'm tired of living in fear and danger. Father, would you speak? Holy Spirit, would you speak? And would we listen? Jesus, I pray.